Greetings. Welcome back to Lamniforms Radio. I'm your host, Ian Corey. Today, I'm rejoined by former Lamniforms Radio guests, writer Langdon Hickman and Cosmo Gear singer Yvonne Belchich, to discuss the surprising return of drummer Mike Portnoy to the progressive metal band Dream Theater. The three of us have batted around the idea of a Lamniforms Radio episode about Dream Theater since starting an online book club in 2021 to read Koji Suzuki's Ring Trilogy. Those books are pretty cool. When I read the announcement that Portnoy had, after a 13-year split, rejoined Dream Theater, a band that he started alongside guitarist John Petrucci and bassist John Myung in a Berkeley College of Music rehearsal room in 1985, I knew that the moment had come. Yvonne and Langdon are both drummers who, like me, went through a major Mike Portnoy phase while learning the instrument. So I was delighted to have them on to talk about Dream Theater's long career, Mike Portnoy's roster of side projects and pervasive influence, and what we expect from this unexpected reunion. Thank you for listening. And also, that's, I mean, that's pretty relevant to the topic we're discussing today, because it's the kind of thing that might make you, like, quit being in a very successful band for 10 years, just to, like, <laughs> chill out, <laughs> relatively speaking, for a while. Record a mere 30 to 35 Christian progressive rock records. <laughs> in the meantime. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that the stated reason? He was like, dudes, I want to chill. And Petrucci was like, dude, I want to tour. And he's like, okay, well, go ahead. It, it wasn't, it, kind of, it wasn't just that they wanted to tour, it was, um, should we intro the, the, the topic? Yeah, let's, like, let's maybe introduce the <laughs> um, We know it, what we're talking we about, know. you guys will pick it up. <laughs> Sadly, we do know what we're talking about um, in this particular case. Yes, we're talking about none other than the, the band Dream Theater. Uh, the occasion is that Mike Portnoy, founding member and longtime drummer of the band who quit in 2010, 2011, 2010, 2010, has just recently, after a long time away, rejoined the band to much acclaim, much fanfare, blew up my phone at the very least with people texting me. But maybe that's just because <laughs> I went to music school um, <laughs> and happened to know uh, a, a bunch of Dream Theater fans. But yeah, you know, we've talked to the three of us about talking about dream theater at some point it's part of our shared musical history so i figured no better chance to assess the brain damage that i've done to myself by being into dream theater for so long then you know would love to love to have the chance to talk about it with you too so thank you both for coming on the podcast today it's also worth pointing out that the time between the time between mike fortnoy joining the band and now is exactly how hard it is to convince three 30 something year old adults to get together and do something at the same time. <laughs> even, even a thing that we all like. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I'm going to be busy staring. So <laughs> I, I'm booked solid for the next several days. <laughs> then I'm going to be thinking really hard about my mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, That's this to good. me is thinking very hard about my mistakes just in public. So <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm giving off a very like negative attitude about my my dream theater fandom so let's let's maybe start with like the positive side of it something i find really funny is that like we all three of us are surrounded by incredibly overlapping circles because we all met 
in the same kind of like metal metal fan and you know metal writer and metal musician space the vast majority of these people despise dream theater like the vast majority like they are a laughing stock to to that crowd we are notably for those listening at home you're going to know this about ian but if you can guess what the uniting factor between the three of us is uh we are all drummers which is one of the few areas where even in like deep 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 extreme metal fandom you can like drag a drummer for like a black metal band like out into a hallway so that no one can hear them and then soundproof the door so that no one can hear them and they'll be like yeah i practice dance of eternity a lot um, <laughs> just like dream theater and dave matthews band are two groups mm. where if you grab a drummer and no one can hear them speak they'll be like nah yeah no nah, i love their stuff incredible work it's fantastic <laughs> We're not here to talk about DMB, though. No, we're not. I'd like to. Yeah, I, I have met a lot of drummers that have had a phase with, with Dream Theater and Mike Portnoy in specific. I've yet to meet someone who's like, I really fuck with the Mike Mangini stuff heavy. Like, he's one of my favorite drummers. I've never heard anyone say <laughs> Mike Mangini is one of their favorite drummers. I've heard plenty of people say that about Mike Portnoy. I've met guitarists who also attribute their their chops to learning how to play scenes from a memory stuff. I've met a few bassists that are into uh, to dream theater, never met any singers or keyboard players who are into <laughs> dream theater though. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're an instrumentalists band for sure. They're a band that musicians tend like musicians, musicians tend to like, they're a band for people that care a lot about being good at your instrument. But I want to kind of just like lay the groundwork here. How did both of you get into dream theater? How, like how old were you? How deep did you go down the rabbit hole, et cetera? Um, Yvonne, if you want to start off, I know you were talking about having gone all the way to get like the Mike Portnoy style drum kit. So what, what's your dream theater story? Yeah. So I started playing drums pretty young in like, uh, I, I was around eight or nine. And there was a kid that I was friends with named Phil, who was an insane guitar player. And he was way better at guitar than I was at drums. And, uh, you know, we, we, we did the whole getting really into Metallica thing in, in middle school, where you start with Sandman, then you graduate to learning how to play puppets. And then you're like, maybe we won't play battery just yet. <laughs> Through nerding out with him, then we found Dream Theater and then Symphony X, saw their first show in New Jersey when I was like 15. Oh, hell yeah. But yeah, so just uh, having the good fortune to be friends with this shit nasty guitar player mm -hmm. and then having to be good enough to play the Dream Theater songs. You know, I was like 12, 13, and then all, continuing through high school, Liquid Tension. It's like I, I was at the perfect age to find him and Danny Carey mm -hmm. and just never look back and was like, this is my whole world of drums now is just these two dudes. Yeah, there's like a a very powerful like kind of uh, cult of personality around both of those guys. I feel like you can like Mike Portnoy makes it so easy to singularly obsess over his stuff like that you mentioned liquid tension all the extra dvds that he releases all the side projects like that can be your entire musical world is like dudes like that uh so that makes sense to me especially at a young age where you're like 
learning an instrument and have this kind of like idle status, you know? That's exactly what it was. And I wasn't that deep beyond, let's say, those two premier prog bands of like Dream Theater at the absolute top. Like I missed Rush. I was when they were big, I was too young. Mm-hmm. I never really went back to which is probably sacrilegious to you two guys to like, you know, learn learn why they're amazing. Wait. Did you did you just say you've never really spent time with Rush? No. No, never. I'm I'm I am go I'm going to kill you. No. <laughs> I'm going we can, we can do that later. <laughs> my feelings on Rush I think are very well documented on this very podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dragging Ian through hell to let me talk about every single Rush album. <laughs> was it was it you who did the like whole appraisal of like every Rush record? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like <laughs> yeah, the opposite of that. You picked the wrong person to say that. I'm the I'm the uh, opposite of that. <laughs> but yeah, the, the the point is uh I was I found him just at the right age where he was all I needed to know about just being the absolute coolest drummer in the world. Mm-hmm. And you know he had he had so many little signature things like he had his uh, you know two and four single stroke on the hands with a double stroke on the kick like mixing forever fill uh, technique. He had his own little line of the Mac stacks. I had one, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just like the Mike Portnoy brand seemed perfectly engineered to appeal to like prog nerd kids yes yeah i don't know oh yeah i think like the blue beard you know he was cool (laughs) in that way a very for a very specific definition of cool yeah Yeah, exactly those at home can't see it but i'm wearing an evil wizard shirt and i gotta i gotta be honest yeah yeah it was (laughs) like laser design for me it's like Hey kid, put down your fantasy novel and your D and D books. Look at my blue beard. Right. Go buy my drums. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, absolutely, sir. Where can I buy them, sir? <laughs> oh, you you released a DVD of you just playing the drums for an album, and then you put out four sequels to, it? five sequels to it. Yeah, I'll buy those. But yeah, so I started with the Pearl Forum, like every every novice drummer does, and then. And when I was growing it, there was only one drum kit that I could get. It mm-hmm. was the Thomas Star Classic Maple. And it had to have DW hardware because Mike Portnoy had DW hardware. Did you play Sabian had, cymbals? As see, well? that, that's the one thing I didn't do because uh. I started out with really good cymbals. I was really lucky. My drum teacher was a jazz drummer, and he was just like, buy this ride, buy those hats. Mm-hmm. And they were Zildjian's. The only Sabians I ever had was the Max stack, and then I bought an Ozone like years later, which right. I still love. So Sabian was kind of like for fun and tricks, but <laughs> the kit, and it was it was like the kit. I was like, okay, he's got eight by eight, eight by ten, ten by twelve, and I was like, those are the toms I have to have. And I think at that point, you know, I was almost getting into high school, I had like enough savings from birthdays and Christmases. And my parents were like, well, we'll go have these on your new drum set. And I was like, I'm going to max that fucking shit out. <laughs> were I to go back and put that drum set together, it would probably be a four piece. Right. And then the rest will just sit there forever. It's, it is like, you know, I've, I've now been doing like the four piece setup for so long that I, 
if someone had like three rack toms in front of me, I wouldn't know what the fuck to do. Like it's, yeah. it's just like so alien to the way that I think about the instrument at that point. But it's like, yeah, as a 17 year old to like 21 year old, which was like my peak dream theater listening years, I absolutely was like, yeah, you got to have like three, four times two two kicks, like a million symbols. Like that's just how you have to play yeah. the instrument. You know, like you can really guys, you missed the most important part of the fucking drum kit. How many octobons did you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, those were out of the, uh, out of the price range. And how long were they? We got to have some long ass octobons. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was like a 15, 16 year old drummer with a 13 inch rack Tom on my left next to the hi hat. And like, it was, mm-hmm. nobody needs that at that age debatable whether any anyone needs any of that shit but it's like it is so such a part of the experience of like a band like dream theater is like how how physically far can this fill take him you know across like, <laughs> the array of instruments I do, that he's got so that's for people who aren't dream theater fans the the comment of how physically far that ian made is a very specific reference to the fact that for the longest time he literally had two drum kits set up side by side so that they like linked together and he would literally start the fill on the far left and stand up and walk across <laughs> the drum set because you to the other yeah, seat two chairs sit yeah. down and finish it <laughs> Yeah. So like he literally would cross like a double wide drum riser with one fill. Mm-hmm. It was yeah the 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 double headed monster tight. the dual monster whatever they I think they it was the Siamese monster albino that monster. one Siamese monster there you go Siamese yeah. monster was the first one and then he kept updating the name as uh... purple monster is the OG though that's that's like my oh, yeah. my identification with him that's is like the, the, the purple one. monster. Nat, I just want to point out the, the natural conclusion. That's the one he did on the scenes from a memory tour. The natural conclusion of this kit, though. Do you guys remember when Terry Bazio debuted his chromatic Tom's drum kit with like six bass oh, yeah. drums? Hey, it was a chromatic on the left. <laughs> and like, then... I, need, I need a whole scale because I'm a, I'm a melodic instrument as the drummer. Sure you are, Terry. <laughs> it was a chromatic set of Tom's on the left side. <laughs> And a pentatonic set of toms on the right. <laughs> Get it right. <laughs> he also, I think, had four snares. <laughs> he had like eight China symbols. Like, what's what's the difference? I've seen that thing in person. It's just to. It's like it's the yeah. Mount Everest thing, you know. Like because it's there. He couldn't because like, my sponsors will make it I, for me. Right. It won't. Yes. He couldn't beat Neil Peart in terms of. So, like, I think Neil Peart's the king of the biggest drum set where you actually use everything on the drum set without getting too deep into the rush thing. Again, like if you watch him play live, there's not a single foot pedal, not a single Tom, not a single snare, not a single cymbal that is not used at some point during a rush show and like during grooves and stuff, not just during fills. So it's like literally assembling a drum kit piece by piece based on, we have 40 years worth of music and I played a lot of different instruments on all those different records. How do I get all of them with me so I can play any song that we have? Terry Bozio went the other direction, which a, a Zappa alumna uh, alumnus uh, absolutely would do, which is how can I make sure that I can play any song by any <laughs> musician on one drum kit? <laughs> and I'm going to take that drum kit to play corn songs at one point, which is like maybe the most overkill. That corn record with Terry Bozio. That's, that's one of the best. I can't believe I got to live through that. That was, 
that was all, both my interests at age of uh, age 13 colliding in like a Cronenberg, <laughs> the fly transporter uh, accident. Um, it was so good. Also semi unrelated. How come corn since Terry Bozio has had nothing but like S class drummers. Well, it's just the other, the one guy, Ray Luzier, who's like useful. He's from the musicians Institute. It's very much like a session dude kind of thing which is kind of like the, the West Coast Berkeley, which brings us back to Dream Theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So my own my own arc to Dream Theater was pretty similar to Yvonne's, and I think this is probably going to be similar for anyone who really likes them. So I've told this chunk of the story a lot in a different bit of uh, music uh, pieces that I've written. But like when I was really young, got into forums this was the early 2000s and like forums were the big way that you get into alternative and subcultural stuff if you were kind of out in the sticks like i was i wasn't like in a fully rural area but like there was one mall and that mall had two cd stores things like that where it's like there was it was a big deal when the second movie theater Mm -hmm. opened because that one had more than four screens so get into that always had been big into music and they start recommending stuff like, Hey, download Mr. Bungle right now. And I'm like 10 or 11 and I'm like, fuck it. That name's silly. And I download (laughs) Mr. Bungle and hearing Mr. Bungle when you're like 11 blows your fucking mind. I was destined to not like normal shit at that point. They also got me into like Opeth because like Blackwater Park was coming out uh, around that time. So to start diving into that, I was a big tool fan because um, we're three drummers. I'm certain we all had our tool phase as well. We don't got to talk about that. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm starting to like all this music, and I'm noticing that the music that I'm liking at that point has this weird texture to it that isn't really like the stuff I've been listening up to that point of like a bunch of new metal, a bunch of grunge, a bunch of classic rock, a bunch of like funk and pop and stuff like that. I can tell it's different, but I can't tell why. And someone's like, oh, you just listed a bunch of, like, prog bands. And I'm like, a bunch of what? And I think, like, people prior to, I I can pinpoint it to Mastodon breaking through. Prior to that moment, prog was a word that you had to, like, encounter by digging. Like, there was, like, a mass cultural move to kind of, like, erase it. Like, if you heard of Yes, it was because of Owner of a Lonely Heart. If you heard of Genesis, it was because of, like, Phil Collins' pop mm-hmm. stuff. The fact that they made these, like, giant art rock epics was, like, culturally, like, thrown out. So they're like, oh, uh, you really like that stuff. Here's some other bands you should check out. And they listed, like, Yes and Genesis and stuff. And I'm like, no fucking way. No, I'm not listening to Owner of a Lonely Heart. But I dig out a copy of Yes Songs, the, the live record from my basement shrink wrapped because my parents just never fucking opened it in like 30 years and i was obsessed with long songs so i find there's a song that's a full side called close to the edge and that's the first yes song i put on and literally like 20 minutes later i stood up and went all right yeah i gotta find as much of the shit as i possibly can like this is this is the best fucking shit i've ever heard in my life so i'm like 12 i've been playing drums for a couple years like i I went to church and I learned how to uh, play drums from the church drummer and, you know, pushing myself with, you know, I'm like, Oh, you know, I really love Mitch Mitchell. I really love Carter Beaufort and, you know, like, uh, like 
Matt Cameron, you know, classic kinds of Dave Grohl, normal stuff that if you're getting into drums, you're going to like. Eventually, someone's like, you got to check out Dream Theater. They're like the big, because again, this is like, I think Train of Thought was about to come out. So they're like, they're in their moment Mm. at that point in a certain space. And so I go to the CD store, again, the only one. And uh, it was an FYE that had that little scan thing so you could listen to records before you buy them, like little clips. And I grab scenes from a memory because the cover Mm. grabbed me. And I scan it and I listen to a bit and I go, I don't like girl singers uh, because I was a little shithead. Uh, And I put the CD back. I was fully convinced James Labrie was a woman. It took me quite a while. And I wrote them off because of that. Because again, I was was 13. This is not a story of pride. Um, (laughs) A while later that someone's like, dog, you had the chance to get scenes from a memory. I also had mastered the art of like taking in a razor blade so you could like pry open the CD case and not actually buy (laughs) the CD, just shoplift them. piracy, yeah. That's right. That's how I got my copy of None So Vile, the Cryptopsy record. I just was like, boop. (laughs) like let's take this death metal home with me but yeah eventually that person was like you have to go back and get it and for whatever reason like i i was also obsessed with with live dvds because like i'd got i picked up like the pink floyd live at pompeii which is still probably the best one i've ever seen and i was like oh you know seeing a great band in a live setting is like you know you really get to see it come alive and i go oh it, I'm I'm in a Best Buy, and they're like, "Oh, Dream Theater actually has a live scenes from a memory thing. I can with the whole record on it. I guess I could just get this thing." I I'm looking at the back. I don't recognize any of the songs. The first record of Dream Theater I ever listened to was live scenes from New York mm-hmm. all the way through. And again, that that was another like big bang moment. Like the minute that oh yeah, because Yvonne left out another part. Yvonne was at that fucking show. Dude, not only that, I'm pretty sure that was my first Dream Theater concert because I I have this distinct memory of being there with my high school bandmates. I think Scenes Scenes was like the new album, so I had gotten into Dream Theater when it wasn't out yet. And then when that dropped, that was the new one, and it was obviously unreal, as we all agree. And... So yeah, so that was that was the show. I remember the 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 shirt I had on, <laughs> and I remember because it was you know they played the whole record and they played a whole second act, right? Which I think ends with learning to live. If I'm the whole not second wrong. set is they play change um, of seasons. a change of yeah. seasons. They play all of a mind beside itself. Yeah, they play Metropolis. Change of Seasons is the encore. Yeah. But yeah, so they it's it's like a two and a half hour long show is is the point. And I just remember being there loving it, but also being like, if they stopped and I got to have a glass of water, I wouldn't be upset. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Mike Portnoy have to like go to the hospital after that concert too? Cause like this is during the time where he was still, yeah. you know, drinking and doing drugs on stage and shit, which is pretty weird to think about the fact that like anyone is coked up while playing dream theater. Like it's just, just doesn't sound like Coke music to me, but like, <laughs> it, you know, so yeah, like the fact that like you had to stop, you would have liked to, you know, have a break. It's like that guy really needed a fucking break. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, so the first thing I wind up listening to by them is the entirety of Scenes from a Memory Live on that DVD, then Metropolis Part 1, A Change of Seasons, A Mind Beside Itself, and then Learning to Live. And yeah, it right. was just so you get like, like a greatest yeah. hits, right? Yeah, the, right. Like injected into your veins. I, I literally, I, I like, I went frantic. I was like, <laughs> I, I like burst up and like for the next several years i was like train of thought drop i picked that up immediately that blew my mind still think it's weirdly underrated record it's finally starting to come into the appraisal that i think it should have had the entire time but there was a lot of people that like really didn't like it when it dropped yeah i think that's Um, the case for most dream theater records this is a very vocal like this isn't images and words therefore it's not good kind of reaction what's really funny for me is that like so i was a big like had to buy my music i i got into a thing where i was like i will only pirate stuff that is either super hard to acquire or like limited run stuff or bootlegs um i was a weird moral puritan in that way for a chunk um because i was a team. i will support um, the giant labels i will support right. them uh, so like I couldn't, yeah. <laughs> f- I couldn't find images and words. So that was one of the last Dream Theater records that I heard from the Octavarium and back. Wow! Wing. And so like I, I accidentally preserved the moment of like putting on images and words and listening to it until after I'd heard like everything they built off of it. And then I, I heard um, when Days and Dream unite their debut record even later than that, which was. Yeah, like most people, so to to answer the second part of Ian's question of, like, how far down did it go, I ordered a copy of the single that had To Live Forever and the other B-side from Images and Words, whose name I'm forgetting. It's a woman's name. Anna Lee? No, Anna Lee's a song on uh, Falling Into Infinity. Eve, yes. I had a copy of the Majesty Demos bootleg uh, I like I had a number of the different official bootleg releases that he was putting out. I also had Tama Star Classic drum kit. Still, honestly, one of the best sounding the great drums. drum kits I've ever played. Yeah, legitimately great. Got my DW hardware. All right. Um, I did play Sabian. <laughs> um, I played Sabians. They got gotcha. because of Mike Portnoy. They got gotcha. you. Because, oh, God. I mean, it, it was the classic thing of like, so this is the other part that ties into, um, I, I was like memorizing stuff about songs. I still know most of the lyrics to most Dream Theater songs. Like anyone, you know, you spend time learning the drum parts. I never actually got a giant kit. The biggest that I ever had was a standard four piece, but then added two congas that I heavily muted. So they sounded like octobons and then rototoms but aside from that it was standard four piece ride two crashes hi-hat sitting down and learning how to play all of those tracks on a four piece i think did more for my drumming than like almost any other thing because like I practiced heavy, like, chops-oriented stuff, like learning tool tracks with lots of limb independence, learning, like, Rush and, like, Bill Bruford drum parts and, like, King Crimson stuff with heavy, like, limb independent stuff. But, like, the thing that sank in and why, like, Mike Portnoy became, like, a favorite drummer, not just, like, a drummer I admired, 
was there's this wild fluidity to everything he's playing. Like, unlike a lot of other, like, really mathy, really hyper-technical drummers, it doesn't sound like math. It sounds like he's grooving the entire time. It's immediately audible, even if you don't play drums. Like, it sounds like the guy's having fun on the kit. I even like hyper-technical music, like fucking unlistenably technical music. But that doesn't sound like they're having fun. You just have to know that they're having fun. It sounds like they're doing calculus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just like, even still, if I'm like trying to learn a track and I'm sort of drumming along to it, I will naturally fall into Portnoyisms to kind of like link the drum beats together. Because without getting too into the technical bit of like, how drumming works transitioning between different grooves you'll learn different like linking phrases to like get you from one groove feel to another and almost all the ones that i will naturally use are just portnoy ones (laughs) dude absolutely there's so many things yeah there's 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 so many (laughs) little things that i mean i haven't played drums in a band in a long time but i write a lot of drum parts and even then, when I'm not sitting there and playing, I will still, on purpose, like, you know, thinking about it, add little trills and, and uh, accent phrases that I know are cribbed directly from him. So it's, it's not even just like, oh, yeah, while I'm playing, I just drop in this little, like, Portnoy phrase. But it's like, no, I, I want this Portnoy <laughs> reference to be in there. Because it's it's something I would play if I were playing this song in in actuality. I don't think of them as Portnoy things until like I sit back and th- like listen back to a like a thing that I was trying to set out, and I'm like, oh Jesus, that's just like, oh that's the thing that like he throws in all the time before he goes into a little like hi hat like super techie groove or something. I I don't know. I just. It went deep. Yeah. Like anytime there's a lot of like particular, particularly the way that he like does metric modulations, like finds like the way to turn something that's in four into like 12 or, you know, we'll like take the triplet and suddenly use that as the downbeat. There's just all of these like Mm -hmm. little, not even just like fills or licks, but like stylistic approaches to the, to Mm -hmm. how to change rhythms, how to change time signatures that are like, yeah, very particularly Mike Portnoy, and he does them so frequently across their body of work that they, yeah, they they kind of sink into your system if you spend a lot of time listening to Dream Theater. For me, it was like, I think it's funny that both of you brought up like live scenes for a memory because like for me, the moment where I was like, oh, I should get into this band is the Erotomania clip from that DVD it was like the first thing I saw on YouTube where I was like, I need to get into this band like i know i've been told endlessly by every other metalhead that i know like don't do it they're corny but i was like i have to do it i have to dive in (laughs) um and that was like around the time that i was really starting to get serious about like okay i want to go to music school i want to study drums like and i want to do this for a living and it felt like getting into dream theater having already been into like a bunch of metal stuff before was almost this like part of my academic music journey where it's like now i'm going to take go to the like the graduate level version of playing metal drums and like i remember hearing like the mirror for the first time and not understanding what they were doing to the opening chunk because they take like this very kind of simple 
guitar pattern and then Mike Portnoy is basically just dancing around it moving where the downbeat is but I hadn't learned how to move with him so I was just like this sounds like noise to me the first time I heard that song because I was just like where's the beat like how are they doing this like how are they thinking about it and learning how to think that way had about as much of an impact on me as like any other band that I can think of on my own like my own skills my own listening ability it yeah, it was a profound influence on on my musicianship. I mean, I think that that brings up a a really important point that we were talking about a little bit in like in text prior to recording this, which is so Mark Portnoy's like brand thing. He generated um a whole cottage industry around himself. To be fair, a lot of musicians did like in the eighties and nineties, one of the big ways that bands that played, especially this kind of music and like, you weren't getting like crazy record sales making, you know, like jazz fusion or prog in the nineties was you'd make instructional DVDs, you'd write books, things like that. And you supplement. And so he put out a lot of different instructional DVDs at first, he was putting them out at the regular rate that someone would. But between the sales and then like f- feedback, people realized like, oh, you're actually really good at this kind of at, at the wing that you were talking about, Ian, of like, not just, oh, here's how you play my part, but in specifically the drum. I don't remember the name of it. The one where he has this really long curly black hair and Derek Sherinian and James Myung are there with him helping play along. Yeah. The very first one. Yeah. That around, that's around the awake era. I think, <clears throat> I think it was like right after awake had come out and right before they were going to record. Um, I think it was in the same studio that they were going to record a change of seasons. And that's why everything was set up. Right. But yeah, he starts the magical thing for so many drummers is he starts talking about, okay, here's this one section that everyone asks me how to play. And instead of just telling you how to play it, I'm going to tell you how I wrote it. And so it's like, Oh, Mm. the guitar is in this, but you know, if you do a little bit of math, you can, you know, break this up, break that meter up into two separate smaller bars of one of this time, one of that one. And then, you know, I can lay down the, and so he's, he's, explaining how drum arranging works and how the process of he then offers like counting advice of like oh when when i'm playing this really difficult thing here's how i'm counting it so that when you listen to it back it no longer is oh god these guys are wanking but all of a sudden you go oh i can feel where oh and on the third repetition that's where you add this thing and now that i know how to count it that repetition is no longer they forgot how to play, but like, oh, that's a really neat little lick. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you were saying is that like only really by diving into the Portnoy like wing did the whole world of not just dream theater, but that unlocked a lot of like how deeply progressive music works. Like, I don't think it would have been as easy for me to get into Behold the Arctopus or Orth Realm or Spiral Architect or any of the more like hyper techie bands of which that that's a whole wing that I became super obsessed with. If not for like learning those little things about like the listening skills, Mm -hmm. there was also the other, the other bit that, that came out of it, which for me was that like, he would cite the drummers that he was pulling from. Like he was very open in a way that a lot of musicians aren't of like, Oh, this drum beat, I was thinking about this, king crimson thing but then i wanted to borrow this frank zap a little bit and then this thing from like anthrax and i wanted to put them together and so like 
I'm a fucking nerd. Anyone that provides me a reading list so that I can make sense of what they're doing, I fucking love. Mm-hmm. But like Mike Portnoy really did become like a near perfect synthesis of like all the other prog drummers from prior to him that everyone liked. Like he was, what if Neil Peart added eighties era Lars Ulrich and also Bill Bruford and also Terry Bozio into one guy. Right. Yeah. You brought up something that I think is super crucial, which is that Mike Portnoy is continues to be, like a fan he he has like the mindset and the approach of being a super fan of other bands and knowing like this is what makes him such a good businessman i think and like allowed him to create that sort of like brand that exists outside of just being like the guy that drums in dream theater is that he knew like if you are a dream theater fan and you really really like the band he knew how to give them exactly what he would have wanted as a fan of the band. So providing like the reference lists, the inspiration corner, the, all the behind the scenes stuff. Like he, he understands super fandom because that's also the way that he listens to music. And so, yeah, like it's funny because I think like the kind of referential stuff got to the point where that could also ruin dream theater for you. Cause you can just be like, I, I just see like they clearly just wanted to write a muse song or something you know, and it, it you can kind of like see the stitches a bit by the end of the the first Mike Portnoy era. But yeah, like oh, yeah. that's absolutely, I think, a big part of it, it wasn't just like, oh, you're getting into dream theater themselves. But here's this whole language. Here's this whole way of thinking about other music. Here's this whole set of references. This whole world opens up to you if you go down the rabbit hole deep enough. I'm of the I'm of the mind. And I think I'm not unique here that like they probably should have taken a break right after Octavarium. Because that still feels for me like the apex of their first run with Mike Portnoy. Yeah. And the band even kind of wrote it as an apex because you have like the final track has that long sequence in the middle of it. That's a million different music references, which is like the most blown out version of Portnoy listing bands and songs that he likes. You complete a for the super fans. They started a thing on scenes from a memory where the ending sound of one record would be the opening sound of the next record. And that cycle can, so the static that ends finally free on scenes from a memory is the opening static for a glass glass prison on. And that continues until Octavarium, which ends on the same note that Octavarium begins on. So it makes a little, it's a closed loop. Yeah. And also like the song Octavarium itself, like every song is in a different key that go. It's like eight songs. So they go up like a scale, essentially. There's also five interludes that are in the incidentals. Right. Like where the black keys would be. Yeah. Like G sharp, A sharp, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like it felt. And then they, they played the they record the score DVD, which is still probably the best live thing they've put out where it's more or less all of octavarium and then a track from every record from the demo is all the way up to uh uh the modern day and it's like then we then we get systematic chaos which was i think the first time that like you were saying where it's like okay portnoy really wanted to make a metal record but he forgot that he's in dream theater Mm mm-hmm and so the rest of Dream Theater, Jordan Rudis of his fucking wizard hat, I love you, Jordan, 
but um, <laughs> hearing him play his little twinkle keys over his stuff. Yeah, the Roadrunner era. So just to, I'm we're not going to do the the full yeah. Um, yeah biological recap that we did for say Rush or even Iron Maiden when I had Langdon on previously. But like the short version is that I I think you can divide the Dream Theater you know career into a few chunks. There's the early stuff yeah. where you know they are cycling through two different keyboard players, two different singers. They're they have outside producers. Uh, they have like a, a sort of big rock radio hit MTV hit. It's not actually like people kind of overstate how big of a hit pull, pull me under was <laughs> because people have a bit of dream theater myopia, which, you know, I'm sure we'll get into. They basically become this like very, very big rock band, but they are kind of straining against what, how much of a commercial success their label wants to be, wants them to be. Then Mike Portnoy and the guitarist John Petrucci take over production duties and kind of start running the band entirely themselves. That's the era from Scenes from Memory leading up to Octavarium in 2005 that we're talking about. Then they sign to Roadrunner. And I feel like that's like a major turning point, kind of Dream Theater very much entering their late era from that point onward. They do two, two more records with Mike Portnoy, uh, Systematic Chaos and Black Clouds and Silver Linings, both of which I think are not good <laughs> um, to be blunt. <laughs> I agree. You can, you can cobble together a decent record from both of them. If I could take in the presence of enemies, part one, maybe great eternal, dark eternal night, oh, whatever buddy. I hate that I, song. I, I'd, I'd edit the song, <laughs> but like I could take that one and then like the best of times, you know, that, that would, that would be like 30 minutes. Yeah. I could, I could, I could make a really good short record out of those. Also the covers disc of black clouds is fucking immaculate. Oh, there's some cool stuff. That's how there, I discovered sure. zebra. Very cool little covers collection where they do like King Crimson, Iron Maiden, <laughs> zebra, which is like another long Island band. So most of the band is from long Island, just for, for other context, part of the, uh, what I've jokingly referred to on this podcast is the tri-state area, Italian American prog metal thing. <laughs> <laughs> which also includes Symphony X and uh, Fate's Warning and all, a whole bunch of, you know, very shreddy tri-state area uh, bands. It, 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 it does say something that the the thing that Dream Theater fans say about Black Clouds and Silver Linings is it's absolutely worth getting because the cover's disc is so good. Like, <laughs> when the, the pitch of the record is you can throw that first disc away <laughs> and then you can put on the cover's disc, which is incredible. Uh, so then Mike Portnoy quit, leaves the band, basically citing like this band needs to take a break. The rest of the band is like, no, this is our job. So we're just going to churn out records every two years. And they and then they set out to prove that Mike Portnoy was, was right. right. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, like the the very next record they get, they they make the the first one, Mangini. The the love the comedy of errors where they record this whole documentary about who the drummer is going to be, but every like prior to it coming out, they're like, oh, it's Mike Mangini. They're going to hire Mike Mangini. I don't remember how the scuttlebutt hit. Um, it was just everyone's like, no, like he works at Berkeley. He's good friends with all the band. He's played on James Lebris solo records. Like they're going to hire him, and then they do this whole thing. They don't. Even, they don't bring a single person in that you are under the impression they might hire, or you're like, oh yeah, they're. Dream Theater is going to hire Derek Roddy to be their drummer, of course. <laughs> yeah. Like, so since since the that like the search for the drummer, whatever it was called, the like reality TV show that they put out, 
Thomas it's Lang. It's called The Spirit Carries On. Spirit. Not kidding. <laughs> Jesus. <Christ>. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thomas Lang has since spoken that, like, yeah, when he signed on, it was basically like a known deal that it wasn't a real audition and that they were essentially making content, you know, like to your yeah. point, like I remember I was a big Derek Roddy <laughs> fan too. And I was on his forum a bunch during that time. And he said like during the interview stage, like the dream theater guys asked him like, how would joining this band change your life? Uh, and he said, well, I don't want to change my life. <laughs> so I'm not going <laughs> to join this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like that. I mean, that was like the last good marketing thing I think Dream Theater did uh, after Mike Portnoy left. It was like their one good idea was just show what it looks like when all of these amazing drummers play in Dream Theater for a bit. And so you get to see like, oh my God, that's Marco Miniman playing Dream Theater songs or that's Thomas Lang beating the shit out of dance of eternity um that was so fucked up that that because that was pitched at people like us where i see marco miniman playing like playing with dream theater i'm like don't tease me like this yeah don't tease me you know i want this you know i want this so bad <laughs> like and it's also funny drummers love marco miniman we love that guy i would kill for you marco <laughs> <laughs> the guys that they kind of threw under the bus were sort of interesting too. Like Virgil Donati clearly did not have a very good audition. Um, and that's, yeah. that's a guy that sounds just like comically stiff when playing like compared to Mike Portnoy or um, Achilles for the, the Brazilian guy who played Priester. in Angra. Yeah. yeah. Like he, his audition did not sound very good. And so it's like, Ugh, why it's did, like, why did you have to, and it's it, Right? I'm like, these guys are great drummers. Like, Virgil Donati's like a generational fusion talent. Priester has since put on a bunch of Dream Theater covers on his own YouTube channel. He sounds fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. Which isn't a surprise. He's a great drummer. It's, we get that absolute... Can you remember anything from the self-titled Dream Theater record that came out? I remember a joke that a friend of mine made about it. I remember no notes from the music <laughs> itself. Like the, it has this like opening track that it's like an instrumental overture. Cause of course. Yeah. Um, and a friend of mine says like, this just sounds like the music they play before football. <laughs> it's like all these like dun, I, dun, 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 kind of orchestra hit sounding things. It's like, it's, it, like cause that's, that's ultimately the big struggle that they wound up having for the first like chunk of the Mangini era. I think they finally got it right near the end, but the first two records, I can barely remember a goddamn thing. Breaking all illusions is a great song. song. Very yeah. glad they penned that. That's a, that's fantastic. Pretty much aside from that, like how does outcry go? Did you remember they have a song called outcry? That's the one that has the one part that kind of sounds like final fantasy eight. So I do remember that the instrumental. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, they have a song about the Persian Empire. I don't even remember right. its name. I remember it's about the Persian Empire. Uh, lost, not forgotten. Uh, I actually there we go. Yes, I, that's I'm a it. weird. I'm a I'm a dramatic turn of events uh, defender. Although, big caveat here: anytime I say anything positive about a Dream Theater record, there's at least like three songs that I I skip ever on every single one. Like, there's there's no Dream Theater record that I have a uh, an uncomplicated relationship with. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I'm I'm learning so much right now about just uh, so much music that I checked out right. on. So when did you get out off um, the Dream Theater train? So your 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 guys's conversation about what was happening in the band eternally really sort of struck a note 
for me because it mirrored my tapering off of interest in the band, despite having no idea what was going on with them internally. Mm. It must have just <laughs> been some sort of like subconsciously feeling what was happening in the music because the last record I bought was Train of Thought. Mm-hmm. And that's like when I was, I was like, you know, scene, scenes to me is always going to be the definer of my experience with Dream Theater. That was the right age. It was the first new record that they put out when I was uh, young enough to really be passionate about something. It's their greatest then, record. I mean, like, stri- and yes. straight up, that's one of the three records of theirs that if someone's like, I think Dream Theater's bad, I'm like, I'm going to hand you Images and Words, Awaken Scenes, and if you yes. tell me after listening to all three that they're bad, you're fucking lying. They may not be your cup of tea, but they're clearly not bad. It, it is unambiguously their best one. But yeah, Six Degrees, uh, I had Train of Thought. Train of Thought is when I started, like, moving on to other stuff. I did listen to Octavarium. I don't know if I had it. And then by that point, I I was just sort of, I was on a different page. And then to hear you guys talk about how the, the band was starting to have friction during that time. And then the next two records sort of feeling that disjointed because they weren't really aligned either musically or in terms of their goals makes complete sense because to me, they just did nothing. And then by the time Mike Portnoy announced he was quitting, I was like, oh, shit, uh, how about that? You know, that's crazy. And then I remember the the first one with Mangini, was it the self-titled? It was a dramatic turn of events, 2011. Yeah. yeah. It technically had Mike Mangini. <laughs> he didn't get to write a single drum part. I checked out. It didn't really do anything for me. And then from that point on, I was like, um, I'm in other universes now. Well, you made the right choice there because the the <laughs> next two Mangini records are uh, are just they're even worse than the the first two Roadrunner albums. It's a real bad situation yeah. that they got themselves in musically because Mike basically John Petrucci became like the sole songwriter for the band, had complete control, was the producer, and he goes mad with power and writes <laughs> uh, maybe like. Another concept album, double disc concept album. It's two and a half hours long. Uh, that's basically about how EDM is ruining music as a fantasy story. And it's written as what if Game of Thrones, Ayn Rand, and a boomer ranting about electronic music came together to make a baby. And it's so which two one hours is this? long. It's called The Astonishing. The Astonishing. <laughs> oh, that one, that's the one with like the sort of uh, future future city cover. Mm-hmm. Dude, I mean, so thinking back to the area of Dream Theater that I loved. He can't even always, focus on it. He's like, he's got, I got to change the to. I don't want to. I want to take it back. I want to take it back because it is relevant, though. It is relevant. It's relevant. Because there was, you know, Portnoy and Petrici were always the team. But whenever there was a moment where you could tell that one of them had too much leeway, it went south so fast, whether it was like the, you know, James Labrie rapping sections or like Portnoy's terrible spoken word vocals, or, you know, the the first inklings of what would become a song like The Count of Tuscany when Petrucci would like let you see that. And like always, Petrucci's lyrics were the worst. (laughs) Easily. Like by far. Terrible song. Even before we knew where he stood politically. 
the dude cannot write a poem to save his fucking life. Hey, I think that the silent man is full of words and sequence. <laughs> <laughs> what do they mean? <laughs> I've spent if, if years only, pondering this question. If only Petrucci had been more of a silent man <laughs> from that point forward. <laughs> I, I really love listening to Metropolis Part 1 and going, what in God's name is this song even about? <laughs> Yeah, that's the real you could tell the fate's warning influence because that's a bunch of kids who were really high listening to John Arch singing and John Arch lyrics make sense if you read them. But if you listen to them, they make no goddamn sense because the man is a writer, not a singer. And it's what if people got really high and copied that? Yeah, but they don't they don't make the words make sense anymore. I mean, to to Yvonne's point, like things really went south once Petrucci started being legible as a lyricist, like once you knew exactly what he was writing about, because then it's like, you know, yeah, like, oh, like, oh, shit, that guy's like way, way, way over there in the very rightmost direction. I remember listening to On the Backs of Angels and I'm like, hey, this song's pretty, wait, I know, I'm getting a tingle. I'm getting the same tingle I get when I'm listening to black metal. Oh, God. And then I start reading the lyrics, and I'm like, oh, no! So to, to put It's about welfare queens! Oy vey. Yeah, John Petrucci is a, he's very much like a, you know, Long Island Catholic conservative. Yeah, I mean, dude, Great Debate presents, like, cancer research and, like, uh, a pro-life pro-life views as just like these are equal things to consider (laughs) and uh i i forget i forget the line but uh there's like there's it's not really like the song has a hook but one of the sections that comes live are you talking about that bit um no 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 no, no. (laughs) so there's in one of the repeating sections there's two lines where the first one is about like uh should we investigate stem cell research and the other one is like uh, should we follow religious teachings? And then there's a line after that where it's like, you have to follow the light, even if it like uh, exposes you to shadow. And even then I'm like, wait, he could be talking about both of them right <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. He like, cause at first you're like, Oh, he's pro he's pro science. And you're like, no, 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 wait, he could just be saying like, faith is the way forward. And I'm like, Oh, this motherfucker, Got him again. take a goddamn stand. And you know, he wants to, um, but this is as far as he, I guess, is willing to push it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, Dream Theater also have like a 9-11 song, which James Labrie wrote that one, to be fair. Uh, but it's very much, the, yeah, like a fr- my friend of mine who's also been on this podcast, Andrew Noseworthy, was posting on Instagram recently about like neoliberal prog rock as like a particular thing that happened in the 90s and yeah. 2000s. You know, like Stephen Wilson complaining about like oh, kids these days are you know on their playing xbox or whatever and the whole the entire discography of pain of salvation which is a story for another podcast but like there, there's a lot of like yeah these i loved you daniel i don't even care if you're a piece of shit <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah that's for the real heads yeah. langdon and i will link up for a separate conversation about pain of salvation at some point but yeah like there's this very like this outspoken serious thinkers of prog rock. And then it's like nine 11 was bad. <laughs> it's kind of the extent of like the serious. What if thought. rap music seems a little superficial? Don't you think yeah. <laughs> Daniel yeah. Gildenlau will... got a whole concept album out of that. <laughs> <laughs>
I've always said John Myung is the band's best lyricist, oh. and I don't think that's ever going to change. It's, yeah, no. And that's, the dude writes a very like the sample size is small, but the quality is like nine out of ten and above. All high percentage shots, and yeah. it's wild because the dude, yeah. the dude has the same political views as John Petrucci, but when he writes, I don't care. I don't give a shit because that's the thing is that like he's actually a really good writer and so (laughs) he's he's too pure I don't want to know about his views don't tell me about well speaking from like the literary (laughs) end like the classic bugbear of people who like literary fiction is someone like Yukio Mishima who is like an avowed Japanese fascist but also a transcendently beautiful writer and the classic question of how do you engage with work made by someone who is maybe politically despicable um, if it illuminates some part of the human experience. We who like extreme metal also deal with a version of this, which is how many, bit. how dumb can the riffs be before I care that you're a, a, a neo-Nazi, um, which is the least fun version of that question. Cause you, you're not even getting like great, like transcendent literature out of it. You're getting meathead riffs at best, <clears throat> whatever. That's our burden. Our burden is when someone tells you a band, you have to Google if they're racist first. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't think that metal involves so much research. <laughs> right? <laughs> research of shit you would not believe. You're like, oh, oh, similar to Carcass, they use a lot of really big words. Let me make sure that none of those words have racial undertones. I can't believe... <laughs> I signed up for this <laughs> shit. I, I can't believe it. Now I'm stuck. <laughs> like... It, hey, at least Dua Lipa fans found out that she was an Albanian nationalist. Now that's a real metalhead moment. <laughs> Finding out your pop star has hard right wing nationalist views. <laughs> but um, yeah, so like the Astonishing, Ian, did you sit through the entirety of the Astonishing? So th- the Astonishing is actually the only Dream Theater record that I reviewed uh, ever as like a music <laughs> critic. Um, so that means you have to listen to it multiple times. <laughs> The story is that I, uh, I had been like out on dream theater after the, after like, you know, the, I sort of, by the time the self-titled came out, I was like, I'm done with this. I have friends and like hobbies outside of playing music. I'm better socialized. I don't want to just like be deep in the self-hating prog hole that I was like in music school. But then a friend of mine, because I was in a I was in a progressive metal band in college, and you know, bonded with a lot of people over being a Dream Theater fan. And one of them kind of just hit me up, like, "Oh, yeah, I see. I see you're writing for Invisible Oranges these days. Like, what do you think of the new Dream Theater record? Like, have you given it like any thought?" And I've responded by writing an entire review, basically, of the record, and kind of being like, "What's the deal with the the Mangini era so far?" So yes. I have I have sat through the entire astonishing and I regret every minute of it. I did too. What I re- I think what I hated most was there were songs that were good, but they were buried between so so many bad songs yeah, like D tier Disney songs. Because like John Petrucci mentioned on Instagram once that one of his biggest influences is Disney films, which he got really into when he started having kids and would watch them together as a fan and like oh that's really sweet and for a while it was just like oh that's a thing i never would have expected and then and then he leaned in (laughs) and he leaned in and then he leaned in and i'm like i'm gonna kill myself john you've done it (laughs) in retrospect i think the astonishing wound up being accidentally a brilliant record because after setting the bar so low there was no way for me not to like the next record (laughs) right 
You can't make a worse album than The Astonishing. So then you put that out, and you put out... Honestly, if Distance Over Time had come out instead of, like, either one of the two last Portnoy records, I'd consider it really good. Mm-hmm. I'd be like... And then, like, their their last record with Mangini, I think it was legitimately, like, a really fantastic Dream Theater record that most people who like the band only didn't listen to because they're like, nah, they put out The Astonishing. I'm out, man. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. But Answering the Call is a fucking great song. And ignore the fact that one song is about how Elon Musk is a genius. Just ignore that. Don't let it in. (laughs) This is our progressive music trait. We don't let the lyrics in. They don't gotta mean anything. Every song is a Mars Volta song if you don't pay attention. Yeah, I, I think t- you brought us something very crucial, which is like the the kind of muted response to the last few albums, the post-Astonishing stuff. And even like in general, the kind of muted response to the, I feel like dr- Dramatic Turn of Events had a, had a big pop because it's like, oh my God, yeah. like what happened here? You know, who the new drummer, like new era for the band. And since then, it's just been like declining interest. I've gotten the sense that they they still tour, they still put out live records, but like there's not the same like electricity to any of the the stuff that they do anymore, which of course is like, look, they're a metal band in the what fourth decade of being around. Of course, there's just going to be a, a bit of an attrition for general interest in that kind of stuff. But I, I would speculate that a big part of the reason that Mike Portnoy is back in the band is because they really needed a shot in the arm and they needed someone to communicate and actually market their music again to their fan base. And Mike Portnoy knows how to do that. And John Petrucci does not is sort of my like baseless speculation. It's that. And they must also know, like they're not, they're not uh, immune to seeing the numbers. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's the marketing, but I think also they're like, shit, uh, the reception critically to, you know, and to put out a record like the astonishing that, is you know not so great but also it's not so great in such an excessive volume <laughs> right like it's it's easily it's like a it's i guess a a double album but it's like three records long you don't put that much work into something and you know so they're like all they're they're really they're all into what they're doing and then they're just not getting the results and they've not been getting the results since one person left like it's the math is clear so i think for them it's it's got to be a business decision as much as it is an artistic decision to be like maybe maybe we we can imagine like petrucci having a bit of a humility moment where he's like i need my songwriting partner back i clearly can't generate the same results without him and then as you said also they're like uh we need our we need our charisma guy. Like Labrie is the front man on paper, but he was never the front man of the band in terms of fan outreach and like being the one guy in the group with a charisma score of like over 13. Mm-hmm. That was always Mike Portnoy's job is being the face of the band, despite being, you know, the drummer, which is, I guess another reason we all loved him so much because the drummers yeah. are never the stars, but in dream theater, especially in a band like dream theater, where everybody is a 10 out of 10 guy at their thing, Libri included, who I think doesn't get enough love as an incredible vocalist, to be overshadowed in a band where you're the singer just goes to show how sick everybody else mm-hmm. is. 
and despite all that, because Portnoy was the only one who had like a personality that was worth engaging in, he became the celebrated uh, figure. You know, I, I think that was quite resonant. There'd been some scuttlebutt around that the band may have been looking at some their version of financial trouble because obviously, like Dream Theater is a big industry. They include um, like a lot of bands that have been around for a while. They have. They have crew, they have people that are on payroll. Not He's got just the, the mic band. turning guy. Jose is very important, okay? One, we know his name. Jose the drum tech has been with Mark Portnoy since the late 90s. He followed Portnoy out the band and worked with him for the entirety of all of his side stuff and is officially back on Dream Theater payroll. Mm. <laughs> Sick. Well, yeah, I remember like they Dream Theater released like a Christmas song during 2020 to like raise money for like their crew because they couldn't tour that year. Uh, so, yeah, yeah th- there is like an, an entire company here that is that goes beyond just like the five guys in the band. There's. Well, yeah, it's like any any big label machine band mm-hmm. will have the same the same uh, structure. And it's like, that's the reason why the band really didn't want to go on a break before that I mentioned that like Portnoy was bringing up more on the personal and creative end of like, Hey guys, it feels like we're running a little bit low. It feels also like, and it was abundantly clear on those records that like, we're not creatively on the same page anymore. And before when we were not creatively on the same page, it would create some really interesting stuff. But now we're getting slightly, they put out the fucking count of Tuscany. Yeah. That song is so boring. It blue balls you so hard. You're like, is this a song about a vampire? No, it's a song about how Italians are weird. <laughs> and it's 19 <laughs> minutes long. Yeah, I that was one of I ha- I was playing some Dream Theater earlier today, and that's one of the songs that came up on Shuffle, and oh. it is, it causes me like actual brain damage to listen to the Count of Tuscany. <laughs> it's like how yeah, it's this, you get to this point where it's like your your musical production is so impressive. Your, your your technical skills are beyond compare. And the thing yeah. that you use all that to say is like, I met this guy. He was kind of weird. Like, <laughs> like, that's what that's, that's it. You know, it's the shaggy dog story element to the, the later dream theater stuff where it's like all this ado for like absolutely zero substance. It ends on a guitar solo that like it opens with the same really slow, like brooding and emotionalist end of like the the ending guitar solo on the razor's edge the last movement of octavarium and so i'm sitting there getting all ready because i'm like oh it's gonna happen he's gonna put true tree off he's really building it he's really milking this he's he's really milking this this has been going on for four minutes he is milking the there's only a minute left he's really gonna hit me with the the song is done what like it just it does, it's a solo that doesn't happen. He shaggy dogs a fucking guitar solo. <laughs> it's, in retrospect, that's one of the funniest things in the world. I can imagine him putting his foot up on the little foot thing he has oh, on yeah. the stage. <laughs> the metal the metal bricks that they bring out so John Petrucci can do his epic poses. You know that you're a real Dream Theater fan when you remember when uh, Jordan Rudis got the keyboard stand that could tilt <laughs> and not just the one that could rotate. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched all those videos numerous times. But that's to your point, like there's... Yeah. An entire like crew of people that build that stage show that operate all the lights, yeah. that operate all the, you know, all the techs, all of it, 
they were like, we can't go on a break, Mike. It doesn't matter if we're tired and all of us are tired because we're, that's the other thing is that like, this isn't to knock dream theater. Every professional musician and even professional artist has brought up that like the downside to making art your living is now you have to treat it like a job the same way that like, do you always want to go into work on a Thursday? Not really, but you're like, I have bills. Mm -hmm. I can't not do it. But now it's mm -hmm. like people are going to ascribe your creative value. Like, are you a worthwhile creative mind based on 30 years into your career? And now you have kids who have to go to school. You have employees that you need to take care of unless you're a piece of shit. Like, can you still produce for them? And it's like it puts on this weird mental burden of like people will go, you are worthless now because you had a three year period where you weren't super inspired. Meanwhile, oh, did you hear about my bedroom band that has put out two albums in 11 years? They're both super inspired. I'd be like, I bet you <laughs> didn't have to do it for 11 straight years. Right. Like, I'd super get them bringing Portnoy in, especially given I was one of the people who put out a review of the Petrucci solo record, which was the first thing that had Petrucci and Portnoy on it since he'd left the band you can tell the spark is still there. Like you put on that record and you go, oh, they love playing together. It feels like two people who are like real tight jamming mm -hmm. again. And you're like, oh, why isn't this a dream theater record? Why don't you just have my young on bass and, you know, throw some vocals on this. This is awesome. And I imagine they sort of looked at like, wait, so people like when we play together <laughs> and care about it. And it's like, it hits at your point of like, Mangini is a better drummer than Portnoy in terms of every technical aspect. If you need to look at like, can you do X? Mangini can do it better. But he's like, he's not anyone's favorite drummer. I also think that like, I've since Mike Portnoy rejoined the band, I've seen a lot of like YouTube clips of comparing the two of them playing the same parts you know, like what is the end of finally free sound like when Mangini That's does the it classic one. <laughs> versus when Mike Portnoy does it. And I'm beginning to believe that Mike Mangini, sure. He, like, you know, obviously very, very talented, very, very technically gifted drummer at one point had like the fastest single the stroke speed rolls. record for single strokes, which is okay. I guess that counts as drumming technically, you know, insane limb independence can play multiple time signatures at once all that kind of crazy shit but you listen to him trying to solo and i'm not sure based on my own definition of like musical skill and talent that mike mangini is a better drummer than mike portnoy because the guy can't solo to save his fucking ass like that the playing that he was doing with dream theater by the end of it is so stiff, has no flow, no phrasing, no energy, nothing. And then you go back and you watch Mike Portnoy and there's like swag to it. There's like an actual like breathing physicality. You can like feel how he's feeling the music by how he's playing it. Yeah. He, he, I sure Mangini is like the technical, technically superior drummer, but amazingly in this case, like Mike, Mike Portnoy, someone who plenty of people say plays too technically, has no soul, et cetera, compared to Mangini, has all of that in abundance, you know? Yeah, I, th I think it's the, it's the classic divide between technicality and musicality. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. This is a, a tale as old as time. And it's why I think when, for example, when Mike Portnoy joined Avenge Sevenfold, it wasn't overkill. 
because Portnoy understands how to play in Avenged Sevenfold right. and delivered a sick ass performance on that record. He did. Nightmare is, uh, sadly, <laughs> I'm going to come out to everyone. I think Avenged Sevenfold's a pretty good band. I like I, them a lot. I'm, and when Matt Portnoy is just this. doing like a, when he's doing a four to the floor stomper, like it still works. Yeah. yeah. Because he understands that every groove doesn't have to be taken out of Dance Fraternity. Every fill doesn't have to be like, you know, uh, how many notes can you cram in a thing? The grand context in music too, where it's like, if I want that fill to to hit, I need to dial back prior to the fill. So that way you're like, oh shit. Yeah, context. This sort of connects to the whole thing. But one thing that I've found that I think is part of why Dream Theater became that ultimate prog band and the other ones Langdon you were talking about are never going to break through is because overall they, they get this concept of restraint 100%. They'll, they'll have sappy ballads. It doesn't matter that they're sappy. It's just that they're subdued. You know, they'll, they'll put out a song like Surrounded or whatever next to some, some crazy-ass thing, and they, they know that the crazy things won't be perceived as crazy unless it's sitting right next to something that's restrained. Right. Yeah, they're not like the difference between something like Dream Theater and Behold the Octopus to that point is like Dream Theater, I think in their heart of hearts really do want to be a popular rock band and are yeah. right towards that aim. Like they they care about having big memorable choruses. They care about like having vocal parts that you can recall after the song is over. You know, they they are aiming at a broad audience. And the thing that makes them sort of incredible is that they are able to also include all of the insane technicality into songs that are ex- are accessible in a massive scale mm-hmm. in a massive like arena context like that's that's the magic trick they've mentioned that like two of their biggest influences are like journey and fate's warning and like if you make those as two poles you can yeah, it makes perfect sense you're like oh yeah no and that, that's that's a great songwriting idea there's also been a little bit of scuttlebutt i'm not I haven't seen much in the way of grounding it, but I it makes intuitive sense that just Mangini's been facing a lot of like physical pain and physical difficulty because mm, mm. especially drumming the way that he does and with the force that he does for as long as he has that like there were some rumors that they'd started using clicks during their live show. Like again, Dream Theater fan lore. Mike Portnoy had a secret cowbell. Um, <laughs> there was just like a trigger pad that like only the, it, it was in, uh, everyone's in ear mic, but no one like the, the crowd wouldn't get it so that right. he could give the tempo for whatever the song, like was. secret count, pretty normal basically. live. Thing. Yeah. But they, they switched to like a proper click, including for the images and words, like anniversary tour that they did in Mangini, they were set to the album tempo. Mm. And a lot of people were like, it feels weird seeing it because it doesn't have that live feeling of like being a little bit faster or like the slower Mm. parts are a little bit slower. But there were some rumors that that was happening because Mangini needed to have that in order to like better execute consistently because of like physical problems. Haven't seen anything grounding that, but I would not be surprised if someone who plays with the guy hits hard, hard as fuck. Like the guy really beats the shit out of his drums and has been playing very technically demanding stuff for a long time. And then Dream Theater is not 
easy stuff to play, especially in like in a world tour setting. So I'm not sure how much I strongly believe that, but I think that I wouldn't be surprised if that played a little bit of a part in it. Cause they're also, that's the other thing is that like the youngest member of dream theater is like 55, I think 55 or 56. Mm-hmm. That's hard music to play when you're young. Yeah. I can only imagine how hard it is to play when, you know, you're pushing 60 or you're in your 60s. I'm like, that's no knock to any of them. That's like, I, it's crazy that you can get up and play like a two hour set. Every night for Mm -hmm. like three months. Yeah. While like, admittedly, they're touring under better circumstances than most, but it's still not like the best lifestyle to have. Yeah. But I'm glad we mentioned Event Sevenfold because I do think it's worth talking about what Mike Portnoy was up to in the interim. There was kind of a like divorced dad, hot new car, <laughs> hot new wife element to some of the band. Him joining Event Sevenfold, like it's you know it's Mike Portnoy goes to hang out with a bunch of these like younger guys, gets to play you know m- like quote unquote cooler music with them, uh, gets in shape again. All that kind of stuff. He makes his own Avenged Sevenfold style band with Adrenaline Mob, which is very, Ooh, very bad. That, an incredibly bad band. Uh, no, no, no knock on New Jersey, but that is like the the most stereotypically New Jersey metal band I've ever heard. What was that one he had where the the the, the cover was like a passport? Was that was that when he was still in Dream Theater? That was OSI. That was um, he recorded that with Kevin Moore. Yeah, yeah. that was early yeah. on, wasn't it? Because I, I had that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was okay. 98 um, was that first OSI record. And then he cut, technically he cut two more. The third one, um, Speak Make Thunder or something or Fire Make Thunder. He recorded a bunch of drum parts and then Kevin Moore okay. like cut them up to make them into like an electronic beat. But yeah, I know too many Portnoy facts. He, he uh, of the million bands he joined, uh, he brought Transatlantic back. Mm-hmm. And they dropped a fucking sick record. Yeah, I was saying, he just played like a bunch of stuff with uh, Spock's beard. I forget his name off the top of my head. Neil Morse. Yeah. yeah. They are married in my mind. They are. Mark Portnoy doesn't have a wife. He has Neil Morse. <laughs> Neil Morse doesn't have a wife. He has Mike Portnoy. They cut, they cut a bajillion records. I'm a huge prog, like just progressive rock fan. So I love all of them. I'm not sure if people who don't love progressive rock could stomach Neil Morse. Ooh, buddy. Um, he's yeah. Oh, he's yeah. a, he's oh, a yeah. big no, mouthful. I'm in the pit. He's a big mouthful. I've tried. Oh, yeah. I, I tried a little bit of Spock's beard. I did the, the transatlantic record with the big blimp on the cover. Mm-hmm. That's all of them. Okay. They all have. Right, well, shit. No wonder, <laughs> no wonder that's what I know. But yeah, um, it was never going to be like, this is taking over my life. I need to listen to this constantly. So, but even getting to the point of like going down and like checking out all of the dream theater side projects, all like winery dogs and transatlantic and that, that one all didn't do things. it for me at all. Winery dogs, winery dogs is a good band. <laughs> point being <laughs> like even checking out Neil Morse solo records, just on the strength of Mike Portnoy playing drums. On <laughs> is like a sign of the kind of like derangement that getting into dream theater can cause in one's life. I bought a concept album about Martin Luther because <laughs> Portnoy played drums. on. It. I still think that record's great, but also that's, that's a very, um, yeah, it's indicative of the whole situation. 
He made Flying Colors. I oh, listened yeah. to three separate records of What If Coldplay had Mark Mike Portnoy on the drum kit. <laughs> also, Flying Colors is one of the weirdest bands of all time because it's half of the Dixie Dregs, uh, the fusion bluegrass band, uh, Mark Portnoy, Neil Morse, and then a, a singer-songwriter. Very weird situation. I could that was kind of where he Very started strange. to lo- to lose me. So I was also on the Mike Portnoy forums, which is like Dream Theater themselves oh, yeah. have forums, but like the actual Dream Theater forums are the Mike Portnoy forums, which is part of why like the the schism was such a big deal. And again, like another sign of like Mike Portnoy just kind of understanding his fans. He would always have like top ten lists at the end of the year. The guy is just a blogger at heart, you mm-hmm. know, and would interact with the fans there all the time. And I remember like even that, like that was kind of the moment where he's like, "I'm joining all these bands and like Flying Colors, Winery Dogs, uh, Adrenaline Mob, that whole wing of bands that came in." I was just like, "None of this is hitting. None of this is hitting for me." And I ended up migrating instead to the Five Eight forums, which is like the evil. The, the banished dream theater fans who <laughs> the uh, venom punished dream theater. Yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> the the real the the second worst band that he formed was sons of apollo that was oh that's like, the one i was just if, trying to think of because what if he made oh, oh, a God. parody of dream theater there was oh, a wow. the way mike portnoy goes off the rails for me is not when he gets like prog dorky with neil morse it's when he allows his like chunky biker rings. I think that looks cool aesthetic to come out too strongly. Yeah. And yeah. sons of Apollo is that cranked up to 11 and see that's, that's when Mike Portnoy needs John Petrucci to be like, Hey buddy, let's, let's not, let's not go that far. Right. What if, what if dream theater made a concept album about how sons of anarchy is a really solid. Yeah. Movie? So that's to, to me, that's his, that's his big weakness. And that's where, right. that's where he needs help to get out of. It's Mike Portnoy's like fake tough guy shit. That is like his Achilles heel and John Petrucci's like unbearable squareness. That's his. <laughs> and the two of them do a good job of like kind of canceling each other out. Yes. That they're they're like opposing frequencies. Yes. Yeah. Like, cause again, like that's, that's the part of like the, the two roadrunner records before Mike Port and I left that are just like the, the fake tough guy stuff just like is so embarrassing. And the way in particular that those like, dude, nightmare to remember, like we have to talk about the shitty vote, like Mike Portnoy's like very bad death metal vocals where he explicitly like they end with him going, you know, uh, by the grace of God above, everyone survived, which is just the core thing that you could do in (laughs) extreme metal. And so, yeah, it's like literally like Mike Portnoy's need to be like, no, we've got to be heavy as heavy as possible. And I've got to like do death growls versus John Petrucci's lyrics about like something bad almost happened, but it didn't, (laughs) you know, what I think is really funny is uh, he posted on his forum, which I was also active on because of course I was the demo version. He did actual death growls, Right. And the band said no. And listening to it with death growls, I'm like, well, at least I can't understand the lyric where you say, by the grace of God above everyone survived, (laughs) which is so fucking dorky. (laughs) And they were like, nah, dial back the death metal. Because that was the other thing is like creatively, they were on completely different pages. They were like, our fans can't handle death metal vocals. You have to make it sound like hate breed, (laughs) (laughs) which is a weird mix up. The sort of like, that's the the other kind of, the, the reason that that schism, I feel like 
made such a big impact is because again, you could feel it in the music itself to, to Yvonne's point that like Mike Portnoy is constantly pulling the band into the present. Yeah. Let's listen to new metal. Let's listen to muse. Let's listen to Coldplay and Radiohead. And like, let's like constantly trying to bring the band into the present moment. Whereas I think Petrucci's natural instinct as a conservative is to keep doing like late eighties, early nineties, progressive metal forever and change like nothing about it. And that conflict can sometimes be very fruitful. Like I think like six degrees is the record where they find the best balance of like clearly paying attention to the current moment in alt rock, but also just go and hog wild on the progressive metal stuff. But then from the rest of that decade, you could feel them grinding apart in that way. Where like Mike Portnoy is like, I listen to Opeth and, you know, between the barrier to me and all this stuff. And I want to bring that into the band and the, the band being like our fans can't handle that like so we need to keep doing the same thing like this you know mechanical process of doing dream theater songs rather than dream theater writing new songs if you know what i mean yeah i mean it it is really fascinating hearing them talk about like how there was this split of whether they actually trying to figure out how to put this of like portnoy bringing up like yeah i wanted to bring an influence from i'm glad that you mentioned specifically it's like opeth in between the buried and me he was like these are huge in the progressive metal world like huge like opeth is probably going to go down as like the most well-regarded progressive metal band of that era i can't imagine another one dethroning them in terms of everyone is like opeth is a great band i may not like them but they're clearly a great band um, between the buried and me kind of lost the sauce a little bit but yeah and then the rest of the band being like no no we can't i don't think our fans who are the same people <laughs> right the same people who buy those records i don't think they can handle it and i this only started to change near the end of the mangini era where all of a sudden one of the weirdest things of all time john petrucci's nephew is one of the guitarists in periphery oh huh. yeah weird yeah yeah. And so like he'd go to family stuff and his son or not his son, his nephew would show him periphery, but then also like Tesseract and animals as leaders and like Pliny and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden Petrucci got confronted with the present of progressive music. As much as I have probably easily anticipated feelings about Gent, given that I also like really crusty and gross death metal, you can probably imagine how I feel about Gent. There is something to be said for Petrucci finally going, oh, there's like new music that is progressive metal. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so he um he famously like commissioned an eight string that he only got delivered for um their most recent record. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, he writes Dream Theater songs on it. So I challenge you to find me where he's playing an eight string on that album. <laughs> I'm certain he is, but I don't know when it's happening. Right. Because uh, he's he's playing Petrucci licks on it. But so I think uh, part of me wonders if that kind of feeling of like Portnoy kind of slipping back further into the past with the bands of his, the side project bands of his that wound up being like successful as touring things of like Winery Dogs sounds like if Van Halen kept going with David Lee Roth instead of having the Hagar years. I dig that because I like Van Halen, but that is certainly not future gazing music. Like it almost feels like they both went, Oh, maybe we do. I mean, granted, like maybe we do need each other. 
Um, yeah. Granted, we did get scuttlebutt that Portnoy had tried to rejoin the band at some point after leaving, and the band was like, "No, <laughs> no." <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I, I do remember that. So I, I do think like you're, you're bringing up like the band's current moment and Portnoy rejoining. Like, what do, you, what do we expect? What do we want and what do we expect from a Dream Theater album presumably coming in 2024? So I heard something scary that I hope they don't do, which is um, someone asked him, do you plan on making scenes part three? (laughs) Oh, no. And and he said, that's the most obvious thing to do. Portnoy said that, but he followed it with, but because it's the most obvious thing to do maybe that's not the right thing to do maybe that's not the right and the dark part of me the part that loves evil and chaos uh and uh wants to see the suffering of the world the jokerified version of me absolutely needs a scenes part three that is also the astonishing part two <laughs> <laughs> um, we need we need the cinematic worlds to fuse mm. we need to be punished the real part of me absolutely hopes they don't do that I honestly, given how the rest of the band sounded on the past two records, I'm hoping that they are relatively more contained songs. Like, I'm not sure that I need another 20 minute Dream Theater epic unless they like know like this is a change of seasons level 20 minute epic like this. This is a change your life 20 minute epic rather than like, yeah, 20 minutes of music. I just want there to be i'm gonna i'm gonna be selfish i want more trio moments of just my young petrucci portnoy having a feeling like the boys Mm -hmm. and then you know let the other two join in i i also agree that like labrie gets shat on too much and the past couple records and tours he sounded great distant memories or whatever the most recent live record that they did where they um for distance over time his vocals are fucking amazing on that live album it's a fucking great performance so like yeah i just kind of i'm not expecting them to blow my mind i think it's uh i've mentioned this actually in a lot of reviews i I think it's really unfair when we saddle a band that's been around for 40 years of like you have to make a record that changes my life the same way that you changed my mm-hmm. life when you when I was 15 or you're bad and should retire. That's like they're allowed to just make a record that feels good. Mm-hmm. That I would be satisfied with. Like if I get a solid 3.5 out of 5 record from them at this point, I'll feel really good. Cuz to be fair, it's hard to do that at that point as well. I would say I'm on the I'm not expecting yeah. my life to be changed though. I would say I'm on the same page. They're going to have a a lot of kinks to work out just because it's been so long since they've all collaborated. And they also have a lot of baggage to shake off in the directions that were unsuccessful that they were going with Mangini in terms of scenes three. I think that would be akin to like FromSoft putting out bloodborne two, where it's a thing that everyone is like on paper would be excited about, but in practice it's, it's, it's not going to be as good. It's going to ruin the legacy. Don't touch it. What I want them to take from scenes and from a lot of their earlier records is I want them to sort of relearn how to trust themselves to write tighter, concise songs that stand on their own. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. they've over their, let's say mid to late career, even though I'm not as familiar with it, like just from what I have explored, 
they've leaned really heavy into just putting as many notes as possible on the page, stretching out the run times. It's not necessarily filler when it's being played by guys of that caliber, but it's forgettable. So mm-hmm. in terms of like style influence, I don't know. Portnoy's son is in an insane new metal band. It would be cool to, you know, to think if there's some interaction going there from from son to dad in terms of what dad's getting into. But you also fear that it'll be reflected through Mike Portnoy's cornballness when it comes out. To to sum it all up, I want I would be happy similar with Langdon. Give me something that's thoughtful and and well executed and for me, I think that the most important thing is that it's tight. Did you hear the most recent Max Portnoy uh, What's that? news? Uh, he is the new permanent drummer for uh, Code Orange. Uh, oh, that makes sense. That's right. Yeah, no, Yvonne's response, that's it does correct. does make sense. I don't like them, but it makes sense that they, they would take him. Yeah. I'm not excited about the news. I'll keep listening to Tala. Just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. Tala's great. That's a great band. Fully yeah. insane. It gives early corn vibes of like when Jonathan Davis would absolutely go fucking bananas. Dude, that, that singer is um, like six singers in one. He's nuts. Yeah. He's he's like the uh the Mike Patton of New Metal, which technically Mike Patton, is yeah, I was Mike just Patton, say, isn't that Mike Patton? Ignoring <laughs> <laughs> Ignoring that that is Mike Patton. <laughs> I, I, I get what you mean and it is appropriate. Uh, Ian, answer your own question. I the one lingering dream theater super fan thing is if they tour well I'm, I'm i'm assuming they are going to i hope that they play the aa suite all the way through like yes. that's something they never did when portnoy was in the band you um, mean the six degrees stuff yeah, he did it with shattered fortress but so that's not yeah like the glass prison yeah. this dying soul root of all evil repentance uh shattered fortress as like this songs it's basically a concept record split up across multiple albums oh. of like the same sort of themes that are all about like mike portnoy's recovery from alcoholism as okay. much as i crack jokes about his drug use earlier i think it's actually very cool that he devoted so much time to talk about something like that yes same. it's you know it's a serious issue in a lot of musicians lives and i'm i'm always for always down for artists like making art about sobriety even though I, I'm not sober myself, I just, for whatever reason, I think it's a compelling subject matter. And some those songs are fucking sick. Like, uh, Root yeah. of All Evil is one of my favorite Dream Theater songs for sure, in part because, to your points, it's like, that's a really concise, focused, good song that still has all the, you know, very weedly technical Dream Theater stuff. But it's like, there's a song here in the center of it. So that's my, like live that's what i would want as a fan is i would love to see the aa cycle all the way through as for new dream theater i'm torn between like that the trouble is like yeah do i want dream theater to engage with the sounds of modern metal do i want to hear dream theater do gent do i want to hear dream theater like have a a black gaze second like still (laughs) considered at the like climax of a song like i don't know I kind of do because I feel like that's a part of the dream theater experience is like, how are these guys interpreting the modern moment through their thing? But at the same time, I would also be very happy with like, okay, it's the, the, the core group back together. Mike Portnoy's back in the band. Let's do something that is 
the most dream theater thing possible. Like let's do something that's like the core dream theater experience of like something that sounds like images and words or awake or whatever. So I, like, yeah, I don't know. I I'm kind of torn between. They should two make positions. two images. I'm kind of there. And then maybe for the, the second record with Portnoy, I would like to then, okay, you're back on your feet. You found your groove again as a family. Uh, go off the deep end. But like for the first one, just like give me meat and potatoes dream theater and mm-hmm. be snappy about it is sort of my stance. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have a weird hot take that is again going to come from being a dream theater super fan. So Jordan Rudas for the past couple of years has been learning guitar and he's been posting Instagram videos and stuff of him straight up shredding. Like just like two two handed shredding across on the guitar. He has like the Strandberg with the true intonated frets and like the whole. If you're a guitar nerd, you're like, of course, he yeah, did. of course. Um, I kind of want to hear dual guitar on a Dream Theater record, hmm. which we've never heard. Petrucci's been famously very defensive, like early on in the band's career. They apparently like someone asked, like, why don't you let a second guitarist join? And I think his quote was because we're not fucking winger (laughs) Um, or something like that, (laughs) which which I think is really fucking funny. Um, Yeah, I'd I'd really like to hear. Mostly because hearing Rudas play on guitar, he seems to naturally avoid some of the more annoying things he does on the keyboard prevents him from playing the fucking circus setting that he has been doing for the last two (laughs) decades i think having him on guitar would be a a very good (laughs) the carnival's back in town and like i get it man you love keith emerson and you want to pay your respects to him totally get that keith emerson again great player rest in peace love your body of work don't just don't just don't (laughs) like uh it's really kind of sad that uh like jordan rudis is the best keyboard player they've ever had by a certain definition but i think me like everyone likes kevin moore's lines more kevin moore is the most soulful shirinian not a big not a big body of work to draw on, but he, he had some, some pizzazz. Rudess is just, again, incredibly, incredibly skilled, corniest man alive. When it clicks, like the scenes to six degree or scenes to train of thought, I'd actually say window of his playing. It's and all liquid tension. Just liquid tension. Liquid tension is so fucking God damn liquid tension. Honestly, if we get a liquid tension four, but it's just, dream theater like yeah we cut a liquid tension experiment record and we muted tony levin and put james yeah, Mayon like, in there and then also every now and again Labrie, the uh, took I'm a down. break you know he, he took a nap and we had a day in the studio and we banged this out yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sicko and i really liked liquid tension three like a lot of people apparently were like eh on it but i'm like it was fine i will listen to those guys play mm-hmm. anytime because again, there, that's that's the thing that Dream Theater had been missing that it wasn't missing when, um, actually let me rephrase that, why Liquid Tension Experiment mattered was because Falling into Infinity no longer felt like Dream Theater was having fun. You listen to the demos of the record that I had, because of course, and it sounds like they had a lot of really great ideas, like famously on score, they played Raise the Knife, which didn't make yeah, it cool to song. the record. Yeah, very sick. But 
suddenly the musicians who like Portnoy famously almost left the band because he was like, this band is fucking killing my soul now. This burning my soul even. He goes and does liquid tension experiment, um, which has its own weird origin story. And cutting those two records is one, how they netted Jordan Rudess into the band who they originally wanted to replace Kevin Moore, but, and he did for one show and then he went and joined the Dixie Dregs. But so they finally get him into the band, but you can also tell that like going from Desmond Child making the radio rock version of your dream theater songs that you you feel fucking miserable playing. And then you go to liquid tension experiment and speaking as Mike Portnoy, you Petrucci and, you know, a bass God and Tony Levin. And then this guy that you've always wanted to play with cut super fucking fun, like instrumental prog metal stuff. And then you go make scenes from a memory. I don't think that that is a coincidence at all. Like, yeah. and the fact that we had a Rudis that was so dialed mm-hmm. in because like in scenes, he's doing some corny stuff, but it's all either diegetic period music for the parts set in 1920 or he's really locked in like the whole part in like beyond this life or uh like overture 1928 fucking amazing fucking amazing so like if they could dial into that sense of like or or even the same thing that drove train of thought where they famously just jammed for six weeks and went oh fuck i think we have a record like, I think we're actually done writing it. I don't think we need to spend several months. I think we accidentally wrote it by just playing. Like, that's the kind of thing that I'd like more. That apparently they also did on the last couple Mangini records of, like, what if instead of John Petrucci goes off and writes his corny-ass fucking Disney music inspired by Ayn Rand, we play as a band. Hey, the songs are actually yeah. good when we play as a band. Yeah, I, that's, that is the thing that, like, ultimately and i think we're gonna wrap this up here is like it's the chemistry between petrucci and portnoy that i that's what i want to hear i want to hear like how Mm -hmm. those two dudes ideas sometimes conflict sometimes work together uh to that's like the magic for dream theater so i'm i'm just like very excited and that that's what i want is to feel that musical connection between the people in the room together because there just flat out isn't another collection of musicians that can do what they do. And that's exciting. Like, it's it's going to be very fun to see what they come up with. There's obviously, there's so much more that I, I could say about this band. I could talk about Dream Theater for way too long in my life. But uh, I'm really happy that I got a chance to talk to you two about it. Thank, thank you to both of you for popping on and uh, sharing some time with me this afternoon to talk about this <laughs> of course. Yeah. Begrudgingly, I will love them forever. 